Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. And today, post-Keynesian economics explained... We tend to know what Keynes stood for, that output is driven by demand, so if the economy is slowing, then pump some money into it and get people spending, rather than that classical belief that production creates demand. Keynesian economics calls for government intervention in the economy at times, times like now, for example, when central banks almost everywhere are using quantitative easing to try and stimulate the economy. But are we interpreting Keynes as he would like to be interpreted, or did we miss something, or... Have we missed what he was saying altogether? Steve Keane describes himself as a, a post-Keynesian economist. Uh, Steve, there's also new Keynesian economics. Does anyone believe uh, in straightforward Keynesian economics anymore? Yeah, it, this is this is one of those um, complex <laughs> in an intellectual sense issues because there are so many interpretations of Keynes and uh, the dominant one is actually uh, not Keynes' views at all, but the work of uh, John Hicks and Paul Samuelson. And uh, and this is this is why it gets to be very confusing. One of the reasons why it gets confusing. The other is that uh, everybody who's in, in the mainstream starts off learning supply and demand curves, uh, what they call indifference curves to describe uh, how people make consumption decisions, what they call isoquants to decide how firms make output decisions, uh, all fitted together into, into a nice little uh, set of interacting lines that gives you, you know, equilibrium in the market. And, of course, we ignore banks because we know they don't matter. And uh, and let's assume X, Y, and Z because we don't, we don't actually know how to go from individual to collective. So we'll just assume that all individuals are the same, and that's called homogeneity of investor expectations, yada, yada, yada. In other words, there's a belief system, a fundamental what they call theory of value, that gives a unity, as insane as it might be, it gives a unity to neoclassical economics. And the same thing at the other extreme applies to Marxian economics. So most people who call themselves Marxists believe the labour theory of value uh, they believe labor is the source of all profit. They believe that as, uh, as you have an increasing amount of machinery being used, uh, there will be a decline in the rate of profit, and that's what's going to lead to socialism, etc., etc. Um, so in both the um, Marxian extreme and the neoclassical, there's a shared theory of value that means that people sit around a table and there's a huge amount they agree upon before they start to uh, debate how we might extend our, our thinking. Whereas the post-Keynesians... Um, are a very eclectic bunch, all united by one thing, and that's the belief they don't want to be the Marxist or neoclassicals. Right. That's the strange thing. Well, let's look at one of those fundamentals uh, of economics, which is the supply curve, which which slopes up from the left to the right. As the uh, price of a commodity rises, the more you produce, and it keeps on rising. Uh, But you also also have rising marginal productivity because supply is constrained, and uh, the cutoff in demand happens at some point because that cost of production is higher than people are prepared to pay. That's a fundamental economic theory. You say it's wrong. That was based on armchair logic by by Marshall, uh, which was 
based on a, a vision of production, which when it was explained to industrialists in the 1930s by a bunch of economists, one of them started saying, you're accusing us of being stupid. They said, you're accusing us of being reactionary. Um, that's not how we behave at all. Um, we design factories so that the factories reach maximum efficiency at maximum output, and therefore the cost of production falls as we increase the number of, uh, of level of utilisation of our factories. Um, and post-Keynesians took that to heart, and their, their microanalysis, which is largely is based on empirical research into the, into the actual cost structure of firms and empirical research into how people actually make consumption decisions and supply and demand curves go out the window. So post-Keynesians in general uh, would, would, be, would reject the supply and demand so what process. Do, Whether they've got a complete alternative, that's another story. Right. So they reject that particular part of the, right, but of given, the micro. But given that we're using Keynes's name, uh, where did Keynes stand on that? Yeah, Keynes still accepted the, the, the argument that there was uh, rising, uh, diminishing marginal productivity. And this is written in the general theory. If you read the general theory, you'll find uh, Keynes at one point saying that there's effectively saying there's one thing if there's one thing that uh, should be that we must be right on in our benighted discipline, it's, it's this concept of diminishing marginal uh, marginal productivity. There's only a couple of, of diagrams written in the drawn in the general theory, but one of them does look like a rising supply curve. And he, one of his his um, disciples, stroke influences, was a an Italian economist called Piero Schraffer. And Piero Schraffer in 1926 worked out the logic that said that uh, the, the sensible argument was that costs are either constant or falling as uh, as output rises rather than rather than rising on the basis of of um, the way in which one would efficiently manage a factory so there was Keynes's own stuff was confused between his Marshallian background he was he wasn't exactly directly trained by Marshall but he was in the Marshallian tradition um, and when where Marshall's one invented the idea of supply and demand curves and so there's this mishmash of stuff in Keynes and if you're a staunch neoclassical in the sense that you believe Volra then you can end up with the with the whole um, you know, ultimately, in, in what we ultimately got called the uh, uh, new Keynesians and the and the, uh, the new classicals, uh, that vision of economics. Um, so the post Keynesians looked at exactly the same book, and what they saw were the differences. And the main differences, if you wanted to identify the ones that that uh, that mattered most, uh, they firstly were the world is uncertain. You don't know the future, uh, and uncertainty means you can't make nice rational decisions about what to do. So you have to have a, a, a vision of, of genuine uncertainty certainty in how you model behavior and the main way that manifests itself is, is the activity which is most effective what's going to happen in the future about which you know nothing quote unquote from Keynes and therefore your behavior is going to be driven what, what he what he called animal spirits um, but what it, what it, uh, in, in terms of how post-Keynesians have tried to model that the basic argument is people extrapolate current conditions forward uh, because they can't know the future and therefore you will get booms and busts people will extrapolate the current a current trend if it's a boom they extrapolate a boom if it's a bust they extrapolate a bust and you get cycles so it's a cyclical vision of capitalism that comes out of that that um, is is in in general the unifying feature of the post-Keynesian school you don't see the economy as reaching equilibrium so where did Keynes stand on equilibrium I mean we know that he saw the neoclassic approach as being too simplistic and uh, you know rather than looking at the parts uh, it's not even a question of the sum of the parts, is yeah. it? It's, it's, it's the more complexity there's, of the modelling. Yeah, there's a, there's a combination of things in Keynes about that. So, for example, uh, there's, he never wrote it down, but one, one of the, the great uh, contributors to partly to Austrian approaches to economics and partly to, to post-Keynesian called Shackle. Shackle once said that Keynes told him equilibrium, equilibrium is blither. And 
and consequently he used equilibrium as a as an intellectual tool uh, to try to comprehend capitalism as best you could back in the 1930s when it was slightly before the invention of computers, uh, which lets people like me do non-equilibrium modelling quite freely. Um, he saw it as an organising idea for your thought patterns and when he talked about what could go wrong with capitalism, he saw it as potentially falling into what he called an underemployment equilibrium. Um, so that's a way of reasoning about extreme situations. Full employment versus underemployment both can be an equilibrium situation. Uh, no guarantee that employment would be would reach. Effectively, uh, you could use the supply and demand analysis for the labour market, and this is what neoclassicals tend to do, whether they're conscious of it or not. They imagine that there's a demand for labour and a supply for labour, and full employment is where the two lines intersect. Whereas unemployment to them is a gap between the two lines, and then the gap will occur because the Price is too high, so the solution is to drop the price of labour. Now, the the post-Keynesian answer to that is is twofold. Keynes's argument was to say that he assumed there was a limitless supply of labour uh, out to full employment at the going wage. And therefore, as you increase the demand for labour, you did not increase the price, but you increased the number of people who had a job. And therefore, your definition of unemployment was, a, was not a point of intersection of the two curves. It was whereabouts on the, on the labour supply curve are you, and are you a long way from the point at which uh, wages are going to rise with an increase in demand for labour? If so, the gap between that point and where you are is unemployment. And that's involuntary unemployment. So Keynes's vision there, and this has been carried on by the post-Keynesians in a range of ways, uh, is to argue that it is such a thing as involuntary unemployment. People can want to have a, a work, be willing to work at the going wage and can't get a job. Yeah, uh, what you're talking about there is that thing called reality. Uh, I mean, you just need to look around you. But um, what about also the role of money? Because, I mean, Keynes did recognise that money was more than what you've got in the bank or what you've got in your wallet. Um, he did start to include investments and other assets things that uh, the neoclassic economists ignored so does that is that a connection as well between Keynes and post Keynes because I know obviously you yeah, know you, it, you you see debt yeah, as it, being one of the one of the big factors that's generally ignored it, it is in ma- many ways in Keynes it's, it's again it's messed up because if you read I think it's the French preface to the general theory uh, Keynes explained what he was trying to do was to it was the difference between his, his first his second major book which is the treatise on money by the way I've got to make a confession here I have, have not read <laughs> one of the things I've, I've lost that you, you lose the time for scholarship in um, in academia these days with the with the with work level that's involved Involved, uh, and I have not read the Cheritas of Money, and I have not read his Treatise on Probability. Um, so I've got it. That's one of the things I intend making amends when I when I uh, put down my university cloth at the end of this year and uh, and start writing my own magnum opus. I've got to read those two works by Keynes that I haven't yet read. But in he wrote the Treatise on on Money. Um, early on in the Great Depression. Then, according to Vic Victoria Chick, who's one of the UK's leading post-Keynesian economists, uh, Vicky says that when he wrote the general theory, uh, it was after all the banking crises had passed and he was trying to write a more general analysis and thought he effectively, in some ways he thought he'd solved the, the issue about the, bank, the role of banks in causing a financial crisis. Um, but then, in the general theory, his ambition, as stated, I think, in the French preface, was to unify the analysis of money with our general analysis. And the general analysis he was thinking of was still fairly Marshallian. So there's an intention in the general theory bring uh, money into the analysis of supply and demand. Now, in 37, um, in reaction to people's readings of the general theory, which, of course, were quite different to what Keynes thought they'd read, uh, he wrote some very, very 
papers where the role of money was much, much more important. And um, and one of those elements was a, a wonderful piece of witticism. And again, here I'm not sure if it's in the 36 General Theory or 37 paper called the General Theory of Employment. He wrote this little line saying, money, it is said, uh, is, is a store of wealth and... Um, a, a, a way of, 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 of value and you hold it as a store of wealth. He said, why would anybody outside a lunatic asylum hold money? Because it returns nothing to you. He said, the, the only reason is that money re- reduces our disquietude about our trust and our own expectations of the future. And so he was sending up the neoclassicals by saying that you don't believe there's any role for money. He said that only applies in a world in which you know the future. And if you're not particularly confident, you're going to want to hold more money in case things don't work out the way you want to. Mm. Therefore, you get this demand for liquidity coming out of it, and that liquidity can mean at, at some point you want to liquidate everything you've got, which is not uh, not money, to get money as soon as possible, uh, and that's what causes one of the things that causes a financial crisis. So money plays a much it plays a, a, a crucial role in even given that attempt to bring it back into supply and demand analysis. Money plays a crucial role in Keynes's thinking, and that was why it was called the general theory of interest, employment, and a general theory of interest in money. Yeah, general theory of interest, employment, and money. We've got a really bad line. Sorry about that. Uh, so, look, I mean, what you've described there, I guess that raises another topic, doesn't it? Because th- this idea that you are going to liquidate uh, your assets because you're a little bit concerned about the future, whereas uh, if you knew the future, maybe you wouldn't, um, shows that, uh, you know, that another part of the neoclassic theory is that we all behave rationally. Uh, and in reality, that doesn't happen. Well, the definition they've got of rational, they've got is irrational. And this is the thing, it's a definition of rational, which assumes you know the future. Or if you presume, you can use risk as a proxy, an accurate proxy for uncertainty. Now, of course, that's what they did. And the point is, you cannot use past uh, outcomes to predict future behavior. That's what uncertainty is. Whereas risk is, you can use past uh, averages to predict the future. Now, neoclassicals mm. happily substituted one for the other because it's mathematically tractable. Uh, but that is just not realism. All right. And Keynes stood on that. So Keynes was was one of those people saying, yes, we've got to allow for uncertainty. That, so, so again, that, the link between Keynes and uh, uh, and post-Keynesian is, is this belief that you can't predict the future. Yeah, and that's, that's an essential part of any post-Keynesian logic. So when you look at what the in- investment decisions are based on, the neoclassicals will argue that uh, investment decisions reflect the uh, expected future uh, returns of an investment, and you therefore have a, a set of uh, hypothesized returns for an investment, which you discount by the interest rate, and therefore the way you can control the investment is by mod- modifying the interest rate. That's why they're so much obsessed about the interest rate. Now, from a post-Keynesian point of view, uh, it's not the interest rate that's that's the main determinant. It's the numbers you were supposedly discounting. Uh, that's uncertain about your returns, and the interest rate will be relatively irrelevant. So that is a, a major point of distinction between neoclassicals and post-Keynesians. And yet, wasn't that part of the... I mean, the, the gist of Keynes's argument was... To, you know, when the economy is suffering like it was in the Great Depression, wasn't his argument that you you do cut interest rates and invest in infrastructure? You have a, a combination of a monetary policy and a fiscal policy, which is you know very much what's happening now by banks and bankers that you wouldn't consider as being Keynesian economists. No, this is actually the interesting point. The real, what is the real world? Is it more post-Keynesian or more neoclassical? And if it was more neoclassical, I wouldn't be getting the audience I've got, and uh, central bankers wouldn't be driving interest rates down towards zero. But Keynes uh, was saying uh, the future is uncertain, uh, and the end is always near. If I can quote the the, the doors. <laughs> 
And therefore, the, the main thing is to make people, give people more confidence in the future. Um, and he was actually in favor of very low interest rates rather than using it. His idea of monetary policy was actually changing the quantity of money, not trying to change the price of money, which is the neoclassical position, change the price, don't try to affect the quantity. So um, it's the world itself is closer to the vision that post-Keynesians have, and even though they haven't articulated that vision as completely the neoclassicals have done. Right. So are we, are we moving to the point where it becomes mainstream this is the difficult bit because now we come down to religion and a whole set of beliefs are tied up in being a neoclassical that uh, are fundamental and, and i find this happening all the time and it's one of the reasons i'm not confident uh, as some of my colleagues are about you know, it, it's it's our day in, in the sunshine because neoclassicals neatly divide their discipline into, into and micro. Macro and, and micro. Yeah. when they're in the ascendancy, the micro starts to take over everything. So the whole definition of macroeconomics that they got from Hicks and, and Samuelson was shifted to make it more consistent with a the microeconomic theory. And, of course, that microeconomic theory is about supply and demand reaching equilibrium and the market uh, being being the best way to do everything. So let's get rid of government. And um, and then when the crisis occurs, they, they, what they'll say is, oh, well, macro is a bit of a mess, but micro is okay. And they go back to the micro again. And some decades later, they emerge once more, having rebuilt themselves, believing in in this micro so there's no guarantee that uh, that we're going to win that case because for somebody to cease being an air classical they've got to abandon a whole range of what they think is empirically sound what they think is is logically sound analysis of the world at the microeconomic level which is simply wrong and the theory of demand is wrong the theory empirically wrong empirically impossible the theory of supply is wrong um the theory of finance is wrong, et cetera, et cetera, because that's the belief system they'll fall back into. And the tenacity with which they hang onto that belief system is just off the scale. So isn't, uh, that, isn't, isn't that interesting? It's almost like it's uh, taking a tablet, isn't it? It's sort of like, well, we're in a bit of a mess. So we'll take one of these Keynesian tablets, and uh, once things are starting to head back in the right direction, then we're cured. Because, I mean, that was a bit of, you know, when we can look at Roosevelt and what he did. I mean, he... Uh, he thought the economy was recovering, so he tried to get the budget back into surplus and uh, pulled the recovery rug out from underneath it. Yeah, and this is the, this is the problem. It, it, it is a belief system. Frankly, the economics textbooks I had in high school were more complicated than the ones we have for second-year students at university these days. So I learned all this indifference curve stuff and demand and supply and so on and believed it thoroughly in first year. And then and a range of reasons why I began to reject it uh, started in first year of university. But I know what it's like to actually believe that this is an accurate vision of the real world and the objective of economists should be to remove impediments that exist in the real world so that it looks more like the textbook and that involves abolishing trade unions and uh, abolishing monopolies and you have this uh, this sort of reformist zeal which is really lies at the core of most academic economists who believe the neoclassical vision uh, that if only they can get out there and change the real world so it looks more like the textbook it'll work better now when you look at the empirical research uh, into how firms actually behave, into how consumers actually behave, you realise, oh, hang on a second, that's not an accurate description at all. That's completely false. And if you therefore try to impose that textbook vision of the real world, you're going to stuff up the real world really, really badly. Uh, and you and you become much more pragmatic in your thinking about how, how the capitalism operates. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the, the neoclassical thing is such a belief system uh, that... They are not going to abandon it any more easily than a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses can be persuaded. The idea that some bloke dug up a bunch of gold tablets somewhere in New York a few, uh, one and a half centuries ago is pretty silly. <laughs>
Well, maybe that's a good point to lend, uh, finish on. I mean, I, the, the, I guess the one, the one final question I was going to ask, maybe I will ask this one, was, I mean, uh, those who oppose Keynesian, Keynesian arguments, you know, they, uh, I mean, it's, it's largely, it's, it's, it's largely built on this idea of scarcity, isn't it? So when you have, for example, uh, too much fiscal spending by the government, like Keynes had suggested, uh, or even Donald Trump has tried to suggest as well, you know, there's this, this belief that, well, uh, rather than that that fiscal spending by the government ask, a, acting as a, a stimulus for further investment, so that the the private sector can jump in and uh, and everyone wins, this uh, this argument of scarcity is no 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 that's not going to happen. Um, you're going to crowd out private investment. If the government's spending money, then the private sector is not going to spend spend any money, and uh, and and therefore, uh, once we've got through the stage where government spending is necessary to pump prime the economy we've got to pull out of it really quickly because we've got to give the private sector a chance yeah exactly and that and that's that's the sort of stuff that a neoclassical person can fall into and believe and therefore re- referee a paper that makes that case and publish it and it becomes known as ricardian equivalence uh, and this is again the extent to which that shared theory of value they've got plus the belief system behind it lets them come to stuff which is frankly insane but they accept and they put forward logic and they dress it up nicely for their students and then the politicians swallow it because the politicians have done Economics 101 and, and they believe the intersecting supply and demand curve describes the real world and we end up stuffing it up. Now, my favourite character there is a guy called Robert Barrow. I think he's still alive. Uh, Robert Barrow invented this idea of what he called Ricardian equivalence and his argument was, taking a particular line out of Ricardo, that if you increase spending now, people will know that means taxes have to rise in the future and therefore they'll spend less, uh, which cuts down, which reduces the effect of the government stimulus. I think I've gotten the, the, the recent economists who pushed this particular line for a while, but he actually defined what he called expansionary fiscal austerity. And that was the idea that the government cut back. That would make everybody so confident that the government's going to be smaller in the future, therefore you can spend more, and that would stimulate the economy. Um, now, of course, that's expansionary fiscal austerity in the real world gave us Greece. So um, it is... Uh, the whole set of beliefs that go together that end up being based on this idea that we're in a scarcity economy when fundamentally we're not in we're not in a resource constrained economy we're in a demand constrained economy and that's keynesian and post-keynesian economics that's a you know another key element of the two i guess is is that you know it's uh it, it's going for growth rather than uh pushing the scarcity argument yeah and i think is because as i said again no because there's no unifying theory of value for post-keynesians they haven't yet worked one out um there'd be plenty of post-keynesians to listen to what i've just said is that's a, that's a shitty summary of post-Keynesian economics. So it, it is partly like without a theory of value they squabble a lot more uh, and uh, they'll focus on different elements at the same time so it's by no means a unified school of thought but if there is any, any unifying element to the way the post-Keynesians behave uh, is a sense of pragmatism but as pragmatism sometimes they'll grab one different part of this huge elephant they're trying to describe and the a side effect of it is that they will see that particular part of the elephant as being the entire elephant. There's a slight effect of that it means post-Keynesians haven't been as unified and haven't come together in the same sense the neoclassical have but the unifying feature of pragmatism means i'd rather trust a post-keynesian economist's advice than a neoclassicals all right great to talk again steve see you again soon okay matt
And that's it in a nutshell. Bit of a dodgy line, but Steve is in uh, Sydney at the moment. Now, look, if you've just found this podcast series and you want to explore it further, then subscribe. You can either... This is a free one. Normally, you have to pay to subscribe. You can support Steve Keen on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash prof Steve Keen. If you contribute $10 or more per month, you'll be able to hear this and 50 or more other podcasts, an ever-expanding series. We normally do one or two a week. Um... So you can hear all of those back episodes and all the future episodes. Or you can subscribe on the Debunking Economics website, debunkingeconomics.com, and uh, choose one of the subscription plans there. I'm Phil Dobby. We hope to see you back here soon. Thanks for listening. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.